You may be seated. In this morning's reading, we get another story from the book of Acts. As I said last week, the book of Acts was written to teach us how to be the church. Now this how is about values and principles. The specifics of what we do as the church are unique to our own context. So what Zion UCC does to be the church in Delaware in the 21st century is obviously different than it would have been for the early church in the ancient world. It's different from what Zion UCC would have done 100 years ago, or even five years ago. God is always inviting us to discern what's coming next. If we stagnate, we become irrelevant, and we lose the opportunity to share the ever-relevant message of the gospel. And the story that we have this morning is a perfect example of what it means to be relevant in a specific context. It also has some language that some of us might be uncomfortable with if we consider ourselves to be theologically progressive, so we'll address that part. We never skip that. Because my philosophy in unpacking the scriptures with you is that I keep everything. I disagree with Thomas Jefferson's approach. You've heard of the Jefferson Bible? He went through with a pair of scissors and literally cut out all the things he didn't like. (laughs) Be so handy, right? Like if we had a Bible that only said what I wanted it to say. Here's the thing. I think we keep everything, but we're very discerning in how we use it. That's my approach. So as you hear the word of God this morning, I invite you to notice if anything makes you uncomfortable and then think about maybe is there a way you might still be able to use it. So last week in our story, Paul was in the city of Philippi. And this week, we catch up with him in Athens, where he's waiting to meet up with his friends, Silas and Timothy. Ready? So while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. And this was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but telling and hearing something new. So Paul stood up in front of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them scoffed. But others said, we will hear you on this again. At that point, Paul left them, and some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of God for all people. So one thing I appreciate about the Bible is how authentic some of these characters are. The Apostle Paul is a guy with like really big feelings. And I personally resonate with that. You get mostly a tamer version of me up here, but I have pretty big feelings. And the stories that we hear about him and the letters that are attributed to him are filled with this emotion. Paul is passionate about life and faith, and I can appreciate that. And if you were here last week, then you remember that our story started with Paul getting annoyed with a spirit of divination. And this week's story starts with him being deeply distressed, is our translation. Now, the literal translation of the Greek, because you guys know I love to look that stuff up, The literal translation of the Greek says that his spirit was on edge. Maybe that's not necessarily language that you would use personally, but you can understand the feeling maybe of having your spirit be on edge. Paul's in Athens because he's been run out of two towns in a row. That's what the gospel will get you sometimes. He's alone. He's waiting for his friends. He's in a big foreign city. Has anybody ever traveled, been in a foreign city where you don't speak the language, the ideas are foreign? Yeah, yeah. That's where he is. He's in a city full of symbols and icons and religion that doesn't jive with what he believes, and his spirit is on edge. And Paul deals with this by leaning in hard to who he knows he already is and what he's called to do. He goes to the synagogue and the marketplace and he starts talking to people. Now the translation that we read this morning says that he argued, but in Greek, it's that same root word as dialogue. 
And that's not the same thing as arguing. See, all of our translations of the Bible are also interpretations, which means the people who are translating make choices about the words that they use. And sometimes what they choose reflects what they already believe. And there's no way around that because nobody comes to the Bible with a blank slate. Right? We already all have ideas. But I don't really like this connotation of arguing in this particular passage because I think if we look at what happened, the people don't react to him the way people would react in an argument. So I think maybe that's not the best word. Because the first principle that I see in this story is that honest discussions about faith do not have to be an argument. I read an article recently where this man was advocating that in order to get rid of the violent conflict in our world, we could do that by getting rid of religion. But I disagree with that. And I take issue with it. Because I think of all the people I know of any faith, most of them are capable of having a dialogue about what they believe without wanting to kill each other. I think we expect too little of ourselves when we think that getting rid of our religion would get rid of our violence. Because whatever Paul is saying here, it sparks curiosity in the people that he's talking to. Some of them think he's nutso. Some of them don't know what he's talking about. But even those people wind up wanting to hear more because it says it's the whole group of them together that take him to a place called the Areopagus, which we sometimes in English call Mars Hill. Ares is the Greek god of war, also known as Mars. Pegasus is hill, right? So that's how we get Areopagus, Mars Hill. That's where they go. It's the center of conversation in the city, apparently. And one reason that I like this story so much is because I think it's pretty easy for us to identify with. Now, last week's story was spirits and fortune-telling and mob violence and prison, and there are some people in the world who get that immediately. There are some people in Delaware who get that immediately. But this week is a story about people who were privileged enough that they had the time and the resources to meet up for interesting conversation. And I think that most people here get that. Here in this mostly middle-class university town, in this church, with the level of education that's in this room, we get the Athenians. They spent their time, the Bible tells us, and this is the, I love the literal translation, telling something and hearing something newer. This back and forth. They loved the back and forth of a good discussion. And so the second principle that I see in this story is that Paul meets them right where they are. Last week, it was a little girl who needed to be liberated. And this week, it's some privileged adults who need some interesting conversation. Paul's speech here has been used over and over again as an example of the perfect apologetic the perfect evangelism speech, the perfect pattern for a missionary message. And that may well be true. 
but it's only good because the situation called for a speech. And not all situations call for speech. This speech would have been worthless in last week's story where the situation called for action. If we're going to imitate Jesus, we have to meet people where they actually are and not where we think they should be. See, Paul doesn't try to make these people feel stupid. And he doesn't even try to make them wrong. He starts out by complimenting them. People of Athens, I see that you are very religious. He starts out by recognizing their sincere spiritual quest. He uses examples and language that makes sense to them. He doesn't quote the Bible because they don't know the Bible. Instead, he quotes Greek philosophers to support what he's saying. He finds common ground with them. Now, we suspect that the people that he was talking to agreed with him, that the God of creation is too great to live in a shrine made by human hands. They would have agreed with that. He doesn't put himself above them. Instead, he affirms that all of humanity is the same, having a common ancestor, as our stories go, that we are all children of the same God. See, Paul acknowledges something so key about humanity, and that is that we are meaning-making creatures. We are all trying to make sense out of what's happening to us and around us. We want to understand. We are all searching for significance, and some of us call that God, the God that is greater than any of our little human concepts or attempts to explain God. We are all, the text says, groping is the actual word, seeking to touch something real with our hands, like Thomas wanted to touch Jesus after the resurrection. And here, Paul speaks one of my favorite phrases in the entire Bible, when he says, God is not far from each one of us. This is the key. It doesn't say God is not far from the Christians and the Jews. It says God is not far from each one of us. We are, each and every one of us, every body, male and female, gay and straight, black and white, cisgender and trans, rich and poor, conservative and liberal, documented and undocumented, Christian, Jew, Muslim, and spiritual but not religious, and any other divisions that you can come up with, we are all of us created in the image of the divine that includes and transcends us all. God is already speaking to each one of us in the language that we best understand. God is already near to each one of us. So what are the implications of that? Apparently, it's to repent, which is the word that some of you were waiting for. 
See, another principle here is that Paul honors the uniqueness of his message. One of the mistakes that I see us making as progressive Christians is trying too hard to fit in. Because we've seen other Christians who stand out in ways that we don't think are helpful or healthy, and so we try to fit in. I'm most familiar with this in the area of Christian ethics. I've seen this happen a lot. We hear what other religions or other ideologies say, and we say, oh, look, we believe that too. And that's great, because we should acknowledge every bit of commonality that we find. However, if we stop there, we make ourselves irrelevant. Nobody needs to hear our message if we're just saying the same thing as everybody else. We do a disservice to ourselves and to God and to the whole world when we don't share what makes our message distinct. We are boring conversation partners if we're only saying what everyone else is already saying. We have something unique to contribute, and when we share it with love and grace and joy, there is absolutely no reason to be ashamed of it. So Paul's message here hinges on repentance and God's judgment and Jesus' resurrection. And since I can see some of you squirming, let's unpack that. To repent means simply and literally to change our thoughts. The Greek word is metanoia, change thoughts, change mind. It was a cry used in battle when it was time for soldiers to turn around and go the other way. They rode up and down the lines crying, repent, repent, it's time to turn around and go the other way. Turn away from things that are unhealthy for you and for the world. Turn away from things that disrupt the harmony that we were all created for and turn towards abundant life. Repent. And it can't be a shameful thing that we have to do it because there are a few places in the Old Testament where God repents and takes a new tactic. This command, Paul says, this strong invitation to repent is issued because judgment is coming. Now judgment, first of all, God is the only one who gets to do it. We do not. And judgment means the day that is coming when God will set the world right. As a good judge says this and not this. This is true, this is false. This is good, this is bad. This can stand, this cannot. Racist systems will not stand on God's day of judgment. Sexist ideology will not stand on God's day of judgment. Exploitive economic practices will not stand And gluttonous consumption of our planet's resources will not stand on God's day of judgment. As people who follow God, we work against those things now, and one day that work will be completed when God sets everything to right. We don't know how that will happen, so we get busy being part of it now. And here's the thing. If you're standing on the side of evil when it's made right, 
that's going to feel like hell for you. Imagine being a racist person in a society with no racism. That would be torturous, wouldn't it? Things have been set right, and if you're still standing on the wrong side, you're going to feel awful. That's what I think is happening there with God's judgment. And Paul says that day of judgment is coming. We know that day of judgment is coming because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now let's make the connection there. This is evidence for those who choose to accept it that the world doesn't work like we thought it did. That's what the resurrection proves. The chaos and disintegration and death will not get the last word. That's what the resurrection proves. God is greater than all of the death around us, and God's plan for shalom and wholeness will prevail. That's what the resurrection proves. The resurrection proves it. That's Paul's message. And the final principle that I think we see in this story is that we are not responsible for the outcome. Just like I said last week, we are called to speak our own truth. And people either respond to that or they don't. This this message of resurrection is counterintuitive. So the story says that some scoffed, and some remained curious, and some believed. And Paul does not seem to be hung up about that. God invites us to live and to speak authentically, to share the truth as we have experienced it, and then not worry at all about who accepts it in that moment and who doesn't. Because ultimately, Our text tells us it's not God's will that any should perish, and God will set everything right. Amen.